0: Nightlife with Philip Clark on
1: ABC Radio.
0: The Australian Film, Television and Radio School is celebrating its 50th anniversary. Uh, we were just sitting in their offices at the end of last year. I had a yearly ABC brainstorm at Afters, and you can feel the creativity oozing off the walls when you think about who was there. This is that wonderful quote again from Barry Jones. He was the chair of the Afters Council in 1973, giving them a pretty. Uh, well, a not very ordinary mission. The school must act as a revolutionary force. There can be no half measures. We must create one of the world's great schools or we must abandon the project at once. It cannot be a hothouse for mediocrity. Yes. Well, as for the luminaries that the school has produced, look at them. Jane Campion, Philip Noyce, Warwick Thornton... Robert Connolly, Kate Shortland, Gillian Armstrong, the list goes on. And, of course, some of the films that came out of this school as well.
2: No, that is just what men want us to believe. Stupid idiots like like Frank Horden. Well, I won't be caught up in it, not by him or anyone. Aunt Helen, please, please stop trying to marry me off.
1: My country is in great danger. There is a story to
2: tell and no one is telling it.
1: You need somebody younger. Your country already sent young journalists, five of them.
2: Andy holding limp
0: cat in waiting room of vet. Nine words. The photograph? Is that the right way up?
2: Yeah. What are you doing? I'm labeling it.
1: Gertrude Prash. The dance is Saturday night. The dress can't change anything. Watch and learn, Gertrude. Watch and learn. I can make you the most striking girl in
0: the room. Mm, I wonder whether you, whether you recognise them. My brilliant career, of course. Balabo, the dressmaker and proof. After's graduates have won all sorts of gongs from the Oscars, Emmys, BAFTAs, Golden Globes. Tonight we're talking to some of the world's, uh, well, in the world's and the school's finest filmmakers. Gillian Armstrong he was in the class of 1973. Gillian, of course, known for Little Women, uh, 1994, My Brilliant Career, 1979, not 14 again, uh 96, amongst many, many others. A bit later on, we'll talk to Robert Connolly, amongst uh, who made, amongst many other films, Balabo and The Turning, and the TV series The Slap and Barracuda. But first up to Gillian Armstrong. Gillian, uh, you've got a bit of a bone to be. Well, welcome to Nightlife on the first up, I suppose,
2: <laughs> Yes, no, no. Well, uh, thank you very much. Delighted, to, delighted to be. You, you've got here a bit of a bone about at night. Yes,
0: yeah, you've got a bit of a bone to pick with the ABC because you tried to get in here at the ABC in the early nineteen seventies. Uh, your male peers got a look in, although the only offer you got was to be in the typing pool. How did that go down?
2: Um, it didn't go down well. But now, when I look back, I'm so glad I didn't go to the ABC because um, then I wouldn't have got into the film school because. Um, I applied to the ABC after I graduated from my first film school, which was the humble Swinburne Tech in Melbourne, uh, where as part of art and design there was a small filmmaking course. Hmm. It was a four-year diploma. Um, And, yes, at the end of that time, um, 1971, I did apply to the ABC and along with the other fellow students in my year, and, yes, the boys, I've told this story so many times, and please, I don't want to come over as a whinger. I'm only repeating it just to let you all know the world has changed. But what, what, I want you to all know what it was like for women in the 70s. So in the 70s, basically, there were no women directors at all in Australia, none. And not that I was trying to even be a director. I was just hoping maybe one day I could hold a script and stand in, in the background, watching people make drama at the ABC because that was the only place, because we had no film industry, the only place where there was sort of quality drama made. Um, And, yep, I got a letter back, um, a rote letter just saying, um, please report my typing speeds um, to the typing pool Um, because that basically was the only way any woman got into the ABC in those days. And... Generally, um, over the years, as I've got to know um, many um, wonderful, talented ABC women um, who got in maybe 10 years later, um, they said it was such um, a terrible world at that time that all these really, really bright women who started in the typing pool finally made it to be vision switchers or producers' assistants and year after year, they sat in a booth somewhere in the ABC yeah. running the show. There's probably someone right now next to you. They and <laughs> they, they often had like idiot young film school graduates, young men who had no idea what they were doing and who were so lazy and self-entitled that those women ran the bloody broadcaster. But anyway, I didn't ever get in and I never went back. Um, I purposely actually decided I would also never learn to type so nobody would ever ask me to do that (laughs) and um, I finally um, did get a job as an assistant editor in Sydney where I really wanted to come and because I fell in love with the city and after six or maybe about eight months of being an assistant editor in a commercial production house where they're very very nice to me and very encouraging and I probably would have Gone on to be an editor. Um, But I really, really wanted to get into drama. That was my dream. And I couldn't see how because um, there seemed to be no pathway at all. And then I saw the ad for the National Film School for the first year. It was, and I fulfilled every. Everything that they asked, they said you had to be under the age of 24, and obviously I was incredibly young because this 50 years ago. Well, what, what, um, what qualifications could you have had, Jill? Um, the, well, you had to have been under the age of 24, you had to have made a short film, and I've made my graduation Swinburne film, the, the fabulous The Ruth Needs Mowing mm. that the ABC didn't want to look at. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, yes, I applied uh, and I went along to the interview because I'd, I'd had that great... Growing Up Life Awakening, which was, oh, my God, I had four years at film school where there was camera equipment, there were other students, and I had a fabulous time, but I hardly did anything. And actually now I'm in the real world. It costs money to hire cameras and to, and to get film stock. And I really don't know anyone in Sydney who could be my crew, um, and I'm stuck. And I'm um, really regret. So I went to that interview so passionate about, yes, I want to come and do this. It was a pilot training scheme of one year and mm. they're only selecting 12 people from around Australia. Apparently there are like 2000 applicants. So you have to be very passionate. And mm. um, And I just said, I really, really want to come here if we can make films because I felt I've wasted time and it's so you're so lucky to be at a film school and be able to make things and to be with other people talking about films and I really want to learn more about how to make films and how to work with actors because I've never worked with professional actors Mm. so it was the luckiest break of my whole life it was just completely magic timing maybe if I'd actually It had been two years later. I might have by then, you know, actually been doing quite well as an editor and and thought, no, 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 I shouldn't give up this career. This is going well. So I just have to say how thankful and grateful to Barry Jones and to Philip Adams who lobbied to set up a national film school in Australia because, because of that film school and that after we, and by the way, you got the chance to make three short films. We were paid to go. It was like a basic wage, mm. which I've never done ever again. And we got to work with professional crews and actors. And it was just such an, and and the course was run by an ex-ABC producer, Story Walton, and his ex-ABC wonderful PA, Hilary Burt. And it was just like a powerhouse of like incredible learning and passion and at the end of that time one of my films it was called 100 a day won a number of awards and doors were opened to me and suddenly people were talking to me like I could be a director.
0: <laughs> how did you even know, though, Julie, what a film director was? I mean, did you, because there weren't such – there were no models you could really talk to at the time. Or Oh,
1: or,
2: when I was a little girl. How did you yeah, even know yeah, what no, to do? I've been asked over and over and over by film critics um, and uh, writers over the years, like, um, so what was it that made you want to become a, a, a film director? And I have to say, well, unlike Steven Spielberg hmm. and Philip Noyce, when I sat, or um, Kenneth Branagh, all the, all those directors who are now making films about their childhood, how they sat in the theatre and they looked at the big screen and they thought, one day I could do that. No, I didn't think one day I could do that because guess what? Women didn't do that.
0: No, they didn't. Um,
2: but... I loved storytelling. I loved um, so I. I was a, a. I mean, I loved reading. That was and I loved drawing. So there was sort of this mix of visual arts and and I had the father whose hobby was photography. So oh, yeah, I that's right. Actually,
0: Your dad was an amateur photographer, wasn't he? That's my dad right. <laughs> was an amateur
2: photographer. I mean, that was his dream to be a photographer. So I did luck out on. T- my mother was a um, a primary school teacher who, you know, retired to become Hmm. a mum. So I had, uh, if you think about it now, um, when I said, when I realised, and it was actually my brother who was at Swinburne doing business, who came home and said, there's this art school there. You know, I just lived out in the suburbs with an ordinary mum and dad. I didn't know you could learn to be a film director or a designer or anything like that. And he said, I think Jill might like it. So, um my dad, I think, was just as curious and excited as me, the whole family. We all went on open day mm-hmm. and we looked at all the at Swinburne, because you could either do graphic art um and go into advertising, or this little film course, which had been only going a few years, that Brian Robertson, who was a good friend in of Philip Adams, though both once in advertising together, had set up. And I saw the student films and they were so sexy. They were all in black and white and these long-haired boys with their faces painted white running up and down the lanes at Swinburne, I later realised they were, um, to rock and roll music and I went, I want to do that.
0: <laughs> I want to do what they're doing.
2: <laughs> I want to do what they're doing. But, I, you know, it was sort of four years at that art school of doing a bit of this, you know, because I also I went there thinking I'll be a set costume designer because of, you know, my interested in mm. interested in drama and in design but by the after the first two years i realized actually everything that i was interested in came together in film mm. so yeah so i would never have ever yeah thought of becoming a director even then even when i left swinburne because it was an art school we called ourselves film makers and we had no idea about what how on earth we could make a living <laughs> but um but I knew that this was the thing that finally mm. I wanted to do somehow or be part of. I love I
0: we were digging. A, we were digging around, Gillian, and we, we you know, making – I mean, you, my brilliant career, of course, was, was, was you know, this huge early success. We were looking through the archives and we came across you speaking on commercial TV on The Mike Walsh Show. About oh my your God, what about. To earth was I, saying? I know about film. <laughs> have a listen to this. The Cannes uh, Film Festival begins uh, in a moment, and it's the most prestigious film supermarket in the world. And that's really the best way to describe it, because producers bring bring their films from all over the world and hope that people will buy them for overseas countries. They have one very special category, which is the main festival, and only one Australian film has chosen to be in that particular category. Others will be shown, but not in the main uh, competition. And that film is called uh, My Brilliant Career. I'd like you to welcome the director of My Brilliant Career, Gil Armstrong. We'll give her a big (laughs) welcome. Welcome, Gil. Thank you. you. I can honestly say without offending anyone, you are the prettiest Australian female director I've seen on this programme.
2: I not you've had very many on, have you? We've had, a lot, we've had a
0: lot of males, but how long since a woman directed an Australian film?
2: Um, not since the 30s, and there were two sisters, McDonough sisters, but they have been this is the very first contemporary um, female director you have sitting right here.
0: Yeah, well, there you are. That was, that was the sort of sexism <laughs> of the 70s, I suppose. What, oh, well, was... no,
2: I mean, I, I did, he, he, he was joking. I've got to say, hmm. Mike Walsh has actually um, been so supportive um I, you know though in those days nobody was interested in in filmmakers coming on talking you they only wanted the stars they wanted you know, actors yeah. mm-hmm. and um i went on his show over and over for, for years for, you know helping publicize every one of my films and um and he's my lo- you know he owns my local cinema the orpheum in Cremont. And so um i've got a real soft spot for the fact that that he really did love film and and he really tried to help and promote lots of Australian films, not just mine. But I have no memory of that at all. I was, <laughs> I've I've seen the clip of um, where I was interviewed at Cannes, and um, I was, it was interesting because I was listening to my tone of my voice because the the clip where I'm interviewed at Cannes by the ABC. Obviously, I felt like oh, I'm on the ABC, so I was actually talking very much like this. I, I, you know, I'm thrilled to be here, and because it's the ABC, I will put on a proper voice. So <laughs> it's funny that I didn't do that to my Walsh. so there you go.
0: <laughs> you, early this week, spoke to after students about the film industry. Uh, I mean, from this distance on the, on the back porch, looking back over, over their career, Gillian, what, what, what advice did you give them?
2: Well, I actually told them the story about how um, I'd had this rude awakening that I'd wasted a lot of time at film school. Mm. So, to basically, tell them, don't do that. You know, realize how precious it is to actually have all this wonder. Well, even now, I mean, it's incredible. We were just in a um, in, in an office block in Chatswood, all on one floor. Um, um with one of the rooms turned into a theatre. They've now got a beautiful, um, um amazing um uh, building with three studios and sound mixing and and um and so on. Um but yeah no I told them I told well I told them that thing of to make as much as they can because you learn by doing. Yeah. I mean of course see see the best of world cinema um but I'd done all that at Swinburne. That's why I went to that interview saying now I just want to make. Um, and I also said it is the chance to take risks and play around because you also can't do that once you're out in the real world. Um, so and but finally, try and find your own voice and find what you want to say and do realise that actually films do have a power and they can change things. And um you have this chance to make something, and you know. I said I hope that they will one day be be standing somewhere and talking about their. Um, I didn't say the brilliant career line. Um, but their career, their <laughs> careers in fifty years time, because I said this is um, so strange to think that whole fifty years has passed. And I've got to say, it was a wonderful idea of the school to have on the it was the first day of all the new students there's like 60 now who do a three-year degree and then um then there's a smaller group who do the masters um but to have all those students there with that where they are calling us the 1973 threeers. yeah and six six of um my fellow students came back uh, Philip Noyce was in did a, a um a video from um, LA yep. um, but it was actually very emotional to see the others again because um, it was a very special time and I think we all realized how lucky we were Yeah,
0: exactly yeah. Tell, tell us who was the biggest rat bag of the uh, 73s
2: <laughs> oh um, well probably noise I mean that was my question you see because it was but the, the strange thing is there was only there's only one group shot of us yeah. there's black and white still and it was up on the notice board in the general office area where we're all crammed in and um, when they were over, over the years whenever this photo is dragged out that I look at it and there I am in the front with my waist length um you know blonde hair with little plaits going all the way down the front and no nose um and um so when this whole thing started again and this photo is coming out I said you know is there another copy of that photo? Because it, you may not have realised, but it's, it's actually been damaged. And so I said to them all, well, you know, I'm so disappointed there's only six of you here because I have this really important question I put it at the beginning and then I finally put, put, you know, that was my hook. And then at the end I said, so finally the question, who put the pin in my Nose. nose. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I so, love yeah, they probably sent you the press. And, <laughs> uh, and by the way, Graham Shirley, who was in that year and who's Ooh. now one of our most esteemed film historians and has actually just done huge research about the McDonald sisters, by the way, and for everyone who's interested in film history, um, Mandy Say has written a wonderful book. Um, and I so regret that you know they were around them I mean one of the McDonald's sisters was the editor of the North Shore Times when I was at film school, and they had the most incredible career in the 1920s. They were um three sisters and there was a writer and then there was a producer and then the, and, and the star so the, and one was and um Paulette was also the director director producer mm. um it's yeah. such a great story, so yes. Mandy Walker's book out.
0: Fantastic. On I, was, I was putting, I just I got a little call out earlier for films, Austro- Aussie films that, uh, that you know and love. You'll like this, uh, Gillian. Chris from Kiriwee says, Phil, just two films, The Groundbreaking Sunday Too Far Away, and a little-known 80s piece of pure whimsy, Starstruck go, wow. uh, Which I believe is one of yours. <laughs> it is. Yes,
2: yes. No, no. I, I love all my Starstruck fans. It's <laughs> Starstruck was restored by the National Film and Sound Archive. Thank you, thank you. And they need more funding too. Yeah, um right. and um we've had an, a number of special screenings at the Melbourne Film Festival and and here yeah. and um all the Starstruck fans who've put their hand up and they sang along to all the songs and they've all admitted they were 12 years old when they saw it.
0: <laughs> John, um, John of Coburg's yeah. chimed in too. He says... Jillian directed one of my favorite Australian films, *Starstruck*, a joyous, shambolic, punk-ethic movie that's worth watching alone for the swimming, pool, the swimming pool scenes. We are not going to be a spoiler beyond that. To think it spawned the careers of a member of Midnight Oil and Jeffrey Rush too. Yeah, yes, I it was know.
2: Jeffrey Rush's first film. Yeah.
0: Yes, fantastic, Jill. I know you have to go, um, but it's been a pleasure to uh, to have the chance to chat with you and. Uh, Thank you for the tremendous contribution you have made. And thanks for joining us here on Nightlife. Yep. I,
2: well, I, I can't go without at least saying everyone, you know, still we do need to keep fighting to to keep that film industry going and to tell Australian stories. Um, And we're so happy that the um the current government have announced that actually um, being creative is, is something that is important and it's actually a real job and it, it makes money for all our country and it. It reminds us all about who we are and what our culture is and what's important in life. So um, we're fingers crossed that we're going to hit on those streamers, those big corporations who are taking money off us and
1: they can
2: put it it back into the Australian film industry like they do in Canada and in France.
0: Well said. Well said. Well said, Gillian. Thank you. And
2: you're now going to talk to the wonderful Rob Connolly. That's why I should get off because I know he's on a very early morning flight tomorrow to some exotic place and look for locations so <laughs> um, he's one of the many many brilliant people the school have produced and I should say for the school's sake by the way, it ha- isn't only directors it's and it's it's writers Tony McNamara who did the great um, you know think of um and then the amazing indigenous filmmakers who've come out of the film school, Ivan Sven and Warwick Thornton and, um, there's so many brilliant people. Um and write down to contemporary graduates like Shannon Murphy, who did Baby Teeth, and also um, the creator of Heartbreak High, uh, Hannah Carol Chapman, yes. who's the daughter of two of the early producers, Penny Chapman and her dad, um forgotten his name, Carol. But anyway, um Fantastic. so I just thought I wanted to name them and sound designers, editors, cinematographers. And apparently the people who get the most work are the people who study radio broadcasting.
0: <laughs> of course.
2: Of course. They've got a hundred percent success rate of rate of their radio graduates.
0: This is where it all begins, you see. That's, That's right. right. Jill, it's been terrific to talk with you. Thank you so much and uh, I appreciate appreciate I time. I'll shut up and
2: goodbye and yeah. have fun with Rob. Appreciate, Thank you.
0: Appreciate <laughs> your time.
2: Nightlife with Philip Clark
0: on ABC Radio. Ah uh, yes, the great Gillian Armstrong, the one of the well, they they talked about it as the Australian New Wave. Of course, I mean Australia had a long history of filmmaking. We did. I mean, Australia was right there at the beginning of feature filmmaking back at the turn of the century, uh, of course, uh, and and it was a thriving business. Maybe Australia made some of the very first feature films. In the world, but of course, it all got overtaken by Hollywood, as we know, and uh, and well, we know the history of it, and the revival of it through the Australian Film and Television and Radio School, of course, uh, has produced talents such as Gillian Armstrong and including Robert Connolly too. Uh, Balabo, The Turning, the TV series, The Slap, and Barracuda. Robert, good evening to you. Welcome to Nightlife.
1: I'm Lovely to chat with you, Phil. It was great to hear Gillian talk about her work. It was an incredible inspiration yeah. to me early in my career. I can imagine.
0: I can imagine. You You came afterwards, of course. What, what year were you – what class were you in?
1: I started in 92. I right. graduated in 95. So, you know, Gillian and her contemporaries had kind of championed our national cinema and, and had paved the way for us. I mean, they were among many filmmakers of that generation. Uh, Peter Weir was a huge influence on me, of course, and mm. uh, and Jill with her own work. It, it, it's it's an amazing kind of story of kind of carving out a place for Australian stories on our screens at a time when it was dominated by the American. Yeah, um, yeah. Fans. So no,
0: exactly, exactly, ex- exactly. The '90s was kind of a golden era in many ways for Australian film, wasn't it? I mean, there were there was Muriel's Wedding, A Castle, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, Two Hands, Siren, Strictly Ballroom, Babe. I mean, the whole streak of things it was and this idea of seeing australian stories on screen was important to us i mean have we lost this a bit do you think i mean people still like them but the opportunity to make them of course so i don't know it seems more difficult
1: do you think yeah look i think the world has changed a lot i'm i'm a real optimist i had great uh, success a couple of years back with the film the dry that i made uh, with eric banner and yeah um and the audiences came out for that and we're, we're just in the final stages of doing the sequel to that uh, force of nature and and then I've, I don't know, I, I'm kind of optimistic that Australians love seeing their own stories mm. so we just have to find a path to audience for them at a time when you know there's the massive impact of streaming and but hey we love going to the movies don't we I think I think it's still outside sport the number one recreational activity for Australians Australians are a great cinema going audience so mm. We can't spend all our lives sitting at home watching Netflix.
0: No, I love the way that it's constantly. I mean, I mean t- tell us about it because I'm in the radio business. Which I mean, everyone's been predicting the demise of this medium for for, for you know since how yeah. <laughs> so long as I've been on air. And the same with cinema. I mean, everyone's been predicting it year after year. Video was going to kill the radio star, and then of course, video was going to kill uh, cinema, and then streaming was going to kill cinema. Uh, it's proved yeah. to be mighty mightily resilient hasn't it and i think the reason is as a regular cinema goer myself at least see at least a film a week that the experience of sitting there in front of a big screen often sometimes on your own and sometimes with with plenty of people is unparalleled because there's a way to tell a story as a way to see a story we actually don't have that's anything right. we don't have anything better than this actually
1: that's right it's it's kind of a pity when you turn up and there's a small audience isn't it i mean i love that collective experience and mm. you know i think i think the australia council did a study that showed that um people want to engage with work after they've seen it so often people you know at home don't get that chance and i think you know some of the cinemas i love have bars that you can go to after and you can watch the film you can go and have a drink and talk to people about it afterwards and mm. If there was a path, I think, for the future of cinema, it would be to make it, to kind of own that collective experience of it more. Mm. And uh, that's why it's a pity, isn't it? You turn up and there's only a few people in the cinema. It's not it's not the same. Yeah.
0: Yeah, t- sometimes, I mean, uh, and finding stories that people want to watch and listen to uh, yeah. is another thing too. I mean, uh, tell, tell me about Balabo. This was a, a – f- uh, well, I think you would th- think one of your most Im- important projects about – the 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 murder of those five Australian journalists in 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 Timor, and yeah. the massacre, of course, covered up for so long, and then uh, you know bit by bit uh, the details eked out. It was a, a tremendously powerful story, and others had tried to 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 do it and failed. You 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 succeeded, and liked what you did, and. I think anticipated that it would reach a large audience and then it sort of didn't um and that it, pu- that puzzled you didn't it did you, did you, did you reflect yeah. on and t- tell me about that
1: yeah it's a really interesting question because it probably across my you know 20 years of making films you know, always going to be one of the most significant things for me you know to take a small crew to that amazing country and to tell that story of um you know, of a nation that kind of found its way, really, and, you know, to have the president at the time, Jose Ramos-Horta, who's played by Oscar Isaac in the film, turn up on set when we were filming in remote Timor, and and also to tell a a story that, you know, has been, I mean, I think the Australian government's official line is still that they were killed in crossfire, those poor journalists, and um, and to tell the story of what happened to Timo, So it was very important. What, what I've noticed, though, and it's the exciting thing about this industry, is that t- time is on on your side. Like, even though the film, it did okay at the time, it travelled very well internationally. It, it wasn't the, the massive hit that I probably hoped it would be at the time, but it's had legs, you know, and I think, you know, we're looking at doing a kind of limited series version of it for streaming now and... Um, and continuing the kind of impact of it as some of those actors in it have become big stars, but you know i, I think of Australian films like Breaker Morant or peter Weirs Gallipoli and you know these these films that are part of the canon of our national cinema in the way they depict our history and and i and i you know and i hope I think that over time Balibo becomes a film much like those other great classics mm.
0: Yeah, it can be funny with stories, isn't it? They they also tend to get well. Well, look at the Gallipoli story. Actually, that's you know, which is an interesting one, isn't it? That that's been told and retold so many times now, but but differently. Has generations suddenly rediscovered this story for themselves? And look what Peter Weir yeah. did. Look what Peter Weir did with it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, he really. Reach deeply into the humanist kind of heart of that story, didn't yeah, he? Yeah. Introduce these incre- incredible actors to you know um, in that in that film, but um, but I, you're absolutely right. I think that you know over time you kind of look at these films and through the prism of the contemporary kind of views of what war is, and you know you think of the current crisis that's happening in Ukraine and what it is to make a story about war, and and I think if you plot that path for world cinema it's fascinating to see different national cinemas address it you know the american cinema after vietnam incredible movies that were made and um yeah no i think australia has to keep telling its own stories to australians i think australians want to see them we want to see our history we want to see who we are explored we want to laugh we want to cry (laughs) we want to um, celebrate who we are so you know without the film school obviously championing so many filmmakers and you know launching my career but also the federal government supporting these stories mm-hmm. we just wouldn't we just wouldn't have them we wouldn't have them on our screens well, I, I remember my my, my kids film I paper planes when I had kids audition for that little kids hiya. the number of kids that came in an audition with an American accent And I was horrified. And part of the political ambition with that film was to make a film where kids could watch a film where their heroes in the cinema weren't Americans, they were actually young Australian kids.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's right. Well, I mean, the success of The Dry too, when you think, look, here's – this is a terrific film. If you haven't seen it, um, everybody um, check it out. It Was I think released in twenty twenty? Wasn't it a couple two years ago, two and a half it years was, ago? Yeah. yeah, yeah, two
1: years. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah. Tremendous. I mean, it's a thriller. <laughs> it's a it's a cliffhanger. It's uh, and yet it's it's set here in 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 this country and in the landscape of our country too. And you know, I can you can you can go weeks and weeks watching stories on. TV and in, for that matter, in the cinema too, and think we've never left the continent of America. You know, we see so yeah. many of their stories that we almost kind of know more about their landscape and what's going on in in their landscapes and in their societies than we do about our own sometimes. I've sometimes had to say to myself, I'm not going to watch any for, you know, for six weeks. I'm just going to watch somebody else's stories. Uh, this is the dangerous and that's what's going to happen to us unless we do tell our own stories.
1: Yeah. And I think there is a real kind of challenge that this new world order has thrown down for filmmakers, you know, the success of all the streaming films and television and the quality of it kind of means, you know, you've got to be, you know, audiences are discerning. You've got to, you've got to raise the bar. Our stories have to be told well and, and we've got big movie stars and big filmmakers, and, you know, we've got to find ways to entertain and reach out to the audience. And I think Jane Harper's book, you know, when I was offered that to to adapt for the mm. dry, I couldn't believe my luck because here it was, it was a big Australian story. It had big actors, big drama. It had these two crimes it had a genre people like, um, and you know, there's a version of that where we could have made it adapted it and made it a limited series set in middle America. Uh, and that would have been heartbreaking for such a classic Australian book. So yeah, well, it could easily so, yeah. it,
0: it could easily sit in America. Actually, it could, it could, it could. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: But one of the things I've loved, you know, with my with my career, and it's kind of underestimated, is the the regional audience for cinema, like those little cinemas in country towns that people gravitate to. Mm. The dry was a massive success outside the cities as well as in the cities. Yep. And it's something where I think, you know, a lot of towns fighting to keep their little cinema going because it's not, it's a place where people can kind of congregate together, watch stories, you know, have birthday parties for young kids, you know, watch Australian films. And Australian films perform very, very well outside the cities. There's a massive appetite for them.
0: Yeah. Tell me about television. I mean, you've made some very successful TV things, The Slap, uh, Barracuda, and amongst other things, but once upon a time, the TV was a little thing in the corner which didn't offer you much scope in terms of filmmaking and image projection, I, I would have thought. These days, it's very different, isn't it? I mean, people even... Yeah. Everyone yeah. at home's got... Well, most people at home now have got access to quite big screens. I mean, you can have 65 centimetre and above screens. that are relatively commonplace, which make the yeah. viewing experience significantly different. And you've had this explosion of creative quality on on television you know long-running drama series um you know the sopranos for example which 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 is episodes in in storytelling are quite you know monumental and creative and i mean people have said well this television's taken over it's the new it's the new it's the new mode of storytelling maybe i don't know what's your view about it and does it matter if it was
1: no, I like the challenge of, you know, distinguishing what's different between the cinema and television. You know, I, I often think that m- movies can be adapted from short stories or novellas really well. I, I just did a recent adaptation of Tim Winton's novella, A Blueback, for fire, the cinema. And, and that lends itself very well to the cinema. But big, epic novels and epic work, I think television is a great format for it. Because you can have a span of time and characters and, you know, the journeying you can um, take an audience on, you know, I think of succession, you know, and people get to the third season and they've met these characters and they've got to know them. And, and I think in some ways it's, it's accepting the differences and enjoying the differences, going, I want to go to the movie see a massive big film on a huge screen. I want to see something I know will have a beginning, a middle, and end in 100 minutes, 120 minutes, uh, or am I going to watch another two or three episodes of something that's going to have two or three seasons on TV? They're, yeah. they're different experiences, actually. I remember the Cohen brothers uh, talking about television and saying, someone said, oh, do you enjoy making TV? And they said, oh, the problem for us is we like, we like endings. We like the third act of stories, you know, <laughs> and television is about you know, a beginning and a middle and a middle and a middle. Well
0: the problem is and is if it's if it's successful, the thing about television is that there is no ending
1: because That's right. That's <laughs> yeah, right. As a storyteller
0: is um, a storyteller, you're being told, No, 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 you can't end it now. We want more That's
1: Right. Whereas I think some people like having an experience that's complete and uh interesting you know, to see the future of cinema on the streaming services, you know, how many people choose to just watch movies. Because I think really, what I'm interested in for the small screen is making longer running more epic work, and making the shorter form feature film content for the cinema. And it'll eventually end up on all those other platforms. But in the first instance, you know, I just love the idea of making it but a collective experience in the local cinema for audiences
0: yeah some i've you know i've spoken to over the years say, well look you know the problem of the cinema is that it's it's really it 's dominated by these huge tentpole things the Marvel series, which I think of now which now totals thirty six movies, and wow. uh, you know smaller smaller things don 't get a look in, but then i I don 't know you see international films like the Banshees of Henososphere, and you think yeah you know which is up for up for a, an award this year which which you could easily see being made in australia or or that or that kind of storytelling easily could be done here and you think no no, no. <laughs> when you've got when you've got powerful characters and a powerful tale uh, that's all you need in a way
1: yeah i've kind of thought a lot about this with some of my contemporaries you know post the few years we've had with the pandemic and mm. You know what kind of stories people want, and I think cinema does those big humanist stories so well. So the scale doesn't necessarily have to be spectacle. The scale can be emotional. It can be, you know, profound. You know, you can cry, you can laugh. You know, it can. It's like, um, you know the, you know, my editor always talked about the idea. My early films the editor of Balabo, the, the idea of cinema being a microscope into the human condition. So you can go to the cinema and you can look into who we are with great detail. Mm. And uh, so I, I definitely, definitely think there are challenges, um, but okay. hey, big, epic, emotional, impactful cinema is you know with stories that are Australian and about us, you're always going to find an audience.
0: Robert Connolly's is my guest, Australian filmmaker and writer and uh, producer, and well, he's also a graduate of Afters. We're Celebrating the fifty years of afters set up in nineteen seventy three, Barry Jones said it's got to be a place for excellence; otherwise, we should scrap it. Well, it it, ha- it has been. Looking back at your launch out of afters, Robert, do you think do you do you think it was influential, or were there things after that that you'd say were more important to you?
1: I was massively impactful. You know, I'd been a at- a theater director really before that and i turned up at the theater and i was really discombobulated for ages kind of looking at what was cinema like cinema was like a back then it was something that only the rich kids did yeah you know you you, you had to have 35 mil film you you know was kids who'd been to private schools that have access to money and i just thought i'd never get to make films and so i was selected i went there i got to make films for the first time julian talked about that and i met contemporaries i met people you know Steve Warland who wrote Paper Planes with me, and credible filmmaker Samantha Lang, who was one of only a few people from Australia that had films in competition in Cannes, and Rowan Woods, who directed the first film I produced, The Boys, in the nineties, in ninety seven, um, with David Wenner. So, so I kind of couldn't have I couldn't have had the career without them. And then the, the school had this whole scheme where you had a mentor. And they encourage you to have an industry mentor. And the producer, John Maynard, who produced Vincent Ward's films and early Jane Campion films like Sweetie, which I loved, mm-hmm. uh, took me took me under his wing. So I've, I've got, you know, such a, um, a great affection for an, an institution that was able to kind of take me kind of as a meandering young guy, you know, in my mid-20s trying to work it out and actually shape my um, capacity to make cinema in a way that's led to a career for the next 25 years that's been a joy, a delightful adventure to make these films. So, no, I think the film school, and it's doing that again for an incredible new generation every every year.
0: Okay, can we talk a little bit about the the business too? Because this is the problem, and uh, sometimes yeah. I think filmmaking is a bit like architecture. You would have the greatest ideas, but of course, someone's you need the developer to give you the money, and uh, and a bit the same with filmmaking. Although you mentioned thirty five mil film and the cost of all that, that was back then. These days, of course, in some ways the technology. Is much more accessible now. Is that people make films on on your iPhone? I mean, in fact, yeah. lots of films you see are actually partially shot on iPhones. So you you don't need the big setup. I mean, you you can That's have right. it. You don't need the big setup, but you still need you you need other things. You know, no filmmaker can really get started without a distribution deal. Pretty much, can you? I mean, and these things are well, still are still kind of controlled by big money. So are the barriers to getting into it? To making it easier, do you think, or the same?
1: Yeah, I think the the uh, the industry is being democratized in a way by technology that's really exciting. You can you can shoot films on whatever. I've, I've just come back from the Sundance Film Festival, and people are making films on all sorts of formats. You're right; you can shoot a film on an iPhone. Um, you can edit it on your laptop. Uh, the, the, the technology that was a barrier when I was younger is gone. Yeah. It's not a barrier. Um, But we know that, you know, um, that technology is only part of a a more complex question. You have to have a story to tell and people have to know why they want to tell that story. And what I love about this shift with technology is that it's opening up the doors to new and more diverse voices that have something to say, which I find really exciting. And the way the path to audience has to catch up you know maybe big cinema exhibitions still struggling but art house cinema certainly is playing these works and then the streaming platforms may be barriers to entry but then there are other platforms that are democratizing that too where you can just put the work up for audiences so so watch this space i mean i get great um energy and optimism from some of the younger filmmakers i talk to who are just shaking the tree they're really they're making films their own way they're using technology. They're finding paths to audience in innovative ways. You know, they're pushing, they're coming at our, nipping at our heels and going to push us off the, the, the kind of conservative basis that we've based, you know, so much of our career on. it. it it's exciting. So it's a great question to ask, but I, I, I think it's kind of inspiring. Technology should allow people who haven't been able to tell stories before to tell them. Mm. and uh, and that's got to be good it's got to be good for our industry
0: one of the other debates that's going around a lot is this idea of diversity too in the industry isn't there we've we've there were comments recently about the BAFTA awards how many how many awards went to white people uh are we getting are we chasing our own tails around in circles here a bit do you think or and getting away from the concept of story the strength of story and trying to tick boxes or not
1: no, no. I think it's it's a big question that we have to address in the industry. I think, you know, the, the kind of, I graduated in in uh, ninety five from film school, and there were an equal number of uh, men and women in the course. Uh, and between now and then, eighty five percent of Australian feature films have been directed by men. Yeah. Uh, so that's a problem because the gifted and talented contemporaries that were my fellow students have. Had to struggle harder, whereas I've had the kind of privilege of being in that 85%. Um, but what I think is the the optimistic thing about it is like, you know, let's look at our our National Indigenous Cinema. I mean, it's incredible. And My- Mystery Road is winning the popular Logan, not the critical logo. Yeah. You know, that's you know, an amazing triumph of a show. And and that came out of a real agenda to make um australian indigenous cinema rise to the fore and it took years of time and training and um and and here we are now you know with some of the most extraordinary filmmakers from rachel perkins Warwick Thornton. we've got a film that's just played at berlin job clerk a film called sweet as mm-hmm. uh, which will be coming out in cinema soon and and so i reckon I reckon the positive thing is it's not just a, a kind of token idea that we need diversity. I think these stories are really, really interesting. And, um, and you know, whatever we can do to kind of shake up, you know, the the kind of traditional way that these kind of stories are told is kind of going to put a bit of a twinkle back into the industry, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Audiences, audiences like that. I heard a great um, a- anecdote from someone at Netflix, and Netflix are grappling why... In middle America on Netflix, there's an option where you can watch a lot of the foreign work with um, dubbed rather than subtitles. And people started watching it dubbed and have now pivoted to subtitled. And they're having shows, Korean shows particularly, performing in remote parts of America that you would never think those shows would play in, which is why I never judge the audience. I think audiences are up for it. They're curious. They want different stuff. And the only way we're going to get that is if we help. Um, different and diverse filmmakers get a chance to make their films. Yeah, well, look, the film school's got a great agenda for this too in their selection and and they're really helping. Kind of shift the shift the yeah.
0: boundaries of that. Yes, look at the success of Parasite, the uh, the Korean movie, which which won absolutely one one and one Oscar.
1: Yeah, 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 incredible any, triumph. That film.
0: any list, list of Australian films always has uh, the, that is popular. Australian films always have, and in fact, in my informal poll here on the <laughs> on my text line tonight, The Castle rates very highly. Of course, yeah. What, yeah. Is this because we are being s- we're being given us uh, a vision of ourselves that we think we are or that we want to be think?
1: <laughs> i think we like comedy I, I remember um a distributor showing me the top 10 films in australia yeah. at the same time as the top 10 films in um, the uk and the top 10 films in america in america horror is up there okay. horror films that were one two and three in the australian list were like five six and seven mm-hmm. In the UK, dramas that were period and epic and um, probably the tradition of Merchant Ivory films continuing, they were up the top mm-hmm. and they were further down. But in Australia, comedy was right up there. We love comedy and it's a tough nut to it's crack. It's a very hard a thing
0: top. to make, isn't it? Really? And it's very
1: hard. <laughs> and you think of these iconic Australian films that people come back to and they watch time and time again. I mean, and I think, you know, it's a great, um, quality of us as a nation. It's something that we, you know, really have to own, um, and, um, and own and make more of, um, and fricky as it is, I, I've had, to, I've had interesting discussions with comedians who speak of the kind of, um, pub comedy mm. is where, you know, Eric Banner who I yeah. work with, you know, began in pub, pub comedy and you hear them talk about poker machines. They like. That pub that used to have to have comedy two nights a week to get people, those rooms are now full of poker machines. Mm-hmm. And they talk about how poker machines have we, kind of we, we've damaged
0: yeah, they have. the engine. We've got to wind public. it up, unfortunately, Robert, because time has beaten us. Gee, it's been a fascinating conversation. It really has lovely to always yeah. to chat to you. And oh, thank great. you for your work as well. It's been fantastic. Great legacy. No worries. Thanks, it's Robert. Good to on, talk on you. you. Bye bye. Robert Connolly, filmmaker.